Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, uh, I heard the other day that CBUS are building a new future. What's that all about? Well, CBUS are investing in heaps of new projects, creating thousands of jobs for workers like us. And when you spend your pay at the bakery, you're boosting local business and the economy. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. Come on, I'm starving. Of course you are. <laughs> CBUS, for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon for our weekly gallop through the history of our great game. I said that I was going to be recording uh, in hotel quarantine for the last time on the weekly show uh, the other day, but that is incorrect. I'm in hotel quarantine still uh, because we realised there was no way we could possibly do the work and the recording of story time on the weekend because of the test match. So we're getting it out of the way beforehand, which means I'm talking to Jeff, who's sitting there at Adelaide Oval before the test match starts. By the time you're listening to this, we'll be deep into the, uh, the test summer. But for now, it's just anticipation and we're looking forward to telling you stories on the way through. I couldn't be any more at Adelaide Oval. I'm so extremely at Adelaide Oval that it's, it's, it's coming out of my pores. I'm looking at the chapel stand. I'm looking at the Sir Edwin Smith stand. I'm trying to remember who Sir Edwin Smith is. I will never remember that. Um, most of the other people on the stands too. Various administrators. Uh, so if anything crazy has happened in the test match on Thursday or Friday, it won't be on this show. Um, someone's <laughs> broken the 400 record. Someone's done a bannerman. None of it's going to be here. Um, because we're, we're just too organised. We're doing it in advance. 
I'm trying to make it a thing whenever I'm calling at Adelaide Oval to call the eastern side of the ground the football stand side because there's those five footballers one after another underneath the sails of, of the stand on that side of the ground. But it hasn't quite taken off yet. There's the, what, there's the Foz Williams part. There's the Mark Rusciuto part. Gavin Wanganeen. Who else, Jeff? Jack Oti. Jack Oti. And Max Bashir. And, and I think... So Max Bashir is an, an administrator, a long-time South Australian uh, football or soccer administrator, I think. Uh, and I'm not sure about... Jack Oti, maybe he invented oats. Yeah, no, he was the he was the champion coach at Sturt, wasn't he? That Jack Oti, I'm pretty sure, okay. led them to many flags in the seventies and possibly eighties as well. You wouldn't have porridge without Jack Oti. <laughs> you wouldn't have Anzac biscuits without Jack Oti. If he had not invented, if he had not looked at an oat and said, "What if we rolled these?" That wouldn't have happened. And we've also got on the show after we talk history for a bit. Then we'll talk commentary. The calling the shots interviews that we've been uh, rolling out week after week. We're up to Lisa Stalaker. We had Lisa on the final ep of the series which talked about uh, diversification of voices and the future of cricket broadcasting and Lisa's such a a big part of that and she gave us a fantastic interview so um, stick around to hear from her uh, later on. And Jeff, almost without any further to do, I think we should do a lot of Nerd Pledge! I've got an open window in front of me, so I could really let loose on that one. <laughs> Nerd Pledge is the game that we play on The Final Word. It's the game around which the weekend episode of Storytime revolves. Uh, it's, it's the game where people who want to help the show keep being made, they support the show by sending in a, a little donation, a little amount of, of dollars and cents or, or big currency and small currency, depending what kind of part of the world they're pledging from and that number specifically relates to cricket in some way but we don't know what that link is and we have to work it out that's the premise of nerd pledge Uh, first off the rank we have also had some julio pledges coming in of recent times these are the people who decide not to nerd out and they just send a a, a regular amount of money and that's fine where that's encouraged as well that's welcomed Um, and and our julio pledges we like to dedicate a little bit of time to uh, in their own segment so we've got a few of those to to get through if you're a julio pledger and you haven't been mentioned on the show fear not our warm arms of welcome will be encircling you at the next opportunity that we record story time we have a lot of numbers to get through this week though so we're going to start nerding up sooner rather than later yes we will in fact we should probably note that we're not going to do story time next week just with the way the test match schedule runs and our weekly show plans and our daily show plans it's it's we're going to take a week off the history side of things but it'll be back the week after that and it'll be there which it's more do. about christmas yeah. it, it sort of mean we you know it'd be there'd be one on christmas and one on new year's eve and people have better things to do frankly and and hopefully we might even be able to have better things to do J- just for a day just give us christmas off <laughs> i mean come on just let us have christmas day with our families you monsters <laughs> Yes, uh, well, we'll be back soon after that, I'm sure. Uh, and we'll do the Julios there. That'll be the first point of business when we return to story time in two weeks. Jeff, our first number today to work out, what is it? Our first number today comes in from Dave McRobbie, who I can only imagine sent this pledge while wearing uh, something that gave him a lot of ventilation downstairs. And Dave McRobbie has sent in two dollars 53 253 it's a nice number it's round the five the three the two gives it a sense of stability the floorboards underneath the architraves if you will uh if you were to cast your mind across the acres the the desert heat the shimmering sands of cricket history what might you come up with 
for 253, Adam. Yeah, I had something that immediately came to mind, but before we get to that, Kerry O'Keefe was the 253rd man to play Test cricket for Australia. He's an occasional listener to the final word. So if you're tuning in today, Kerry, good on you. We love you. 253s in Test cricket, Hashim Amla, Sanat Jai Surya, so two champions of the game. One of whom had more phones than the other one. Yes, that's right. One, one, uh, one is always accessible on the blower. The most recent is a game that you and I were at, Jeff, uh, in 2015, though. So I think it's probably this when David Warner went bananas when he went medieval on the New Zealanders at Perth at the Wacker after he made twin tons the previous week at Brisbane he rocked up at Perth and made 244 runs in a day to start which drew him level with Bradman his equal seventh spot in terms of runs made in a single day he added nine to his overnight score out for 253 we were shattered at the time though Jeff because if I recall correctly we were absolutely fixated on 400 thinking that if, if Warner was ever going to if any batsman that we were watching was ever going to go and break the, the Lara mark it was going to be David Warner but unfortunately it didn't quite happen but still the the, the 244 figure was significant because well, we talked about Bradman running that up at the Oval in 1934 in a single day well Warner and he are now yeah, equal 7th Bradman made 309 in a day at Leeds of course in 1930 and I think as well Jeff this might have been the second last time that we were allowed to film on the ground <laughs> that summer mm. I, know, I know what ended it is when we um, had Sonny Munn with us to do a satirical look at the side where screen. play never stops <laughs> <laughs> that was the last of it but the second last of those was when you and I decided to um, uh, reenact the David Warner leap in front of the press box at about half past seven at night mm. and it didn't go over so well <laughs> I don't know why people won't just let us have some fun um, you know we just had a gallop around and that was fine and and then the next day was the day when the uh, sight screen broke down for 17 minutes um, while emblazoned with the uh, Cricket Australia website banner at the time, which the slogan was, where, where play never stops, which we thought was funny. We filmed it. We talked about it. We said it was funny. It was funny. And, and people who say things uh, are not funny when they are funny, well, they usually have a, an iron in that particular fire. So, yeah, two two fifty three is where it ended up. And Mitchell Johnson retired after that test match because it was such a horrible wicket to bowl on. Yeah, yeah. Which Warner took full advantage of at the start of the test match, but. It was an explosive and exciting start to the summer for the little fella who won't be playing this week, but we'll see him back at Melbourne on Boxing Day. So that's 2.53. Dave McRobbie, let us know how we've gone. Jeff, second up, 8.97. Fantastic pledge from Richard Johnson. And the clue is that it's not Craig McDermott. So, of course, Billy, uh, his best figures in Test cricket were his 8 for 97 against England, but you had to look somewhere else. Billy, you are king of Geelong. Uh, Thank you, Richard Johnson who, uh, once again, I assume is not my drama teacher from high school. But it could be. Hello, if it's you, it's probably not, because it wasn't the previous time Richard Johnson came up. 8.97. Well, I know that Richard said, "Okay, this isn't Craig McDermott, which I also took to mean he was probably steering me away from bowling figures. But I couldn't resist looking at, Okay, so only one player's taken 8 for 97 in an innings, but what about in a match? Who's taken 8 for 97 in a test match? And a couple of links there meant that I had to bring these up on the show this week because we're about to see Australia play India and there's a strong Australia-India link. One is that Bob Simpson, uh, later the Australian coach, took that while playing against India in Sydney in 1968, picked up eight for 97 in the Test match. Two, the big German disco, Ben Hilfenhaus, 
picked up eight for 97 in the test match in Perth in 2012. Another test match in Perth where David Warner went absolutely bananas <laughs> when he made 180 from 159 balls against India's uh, pace bowlers, mostly just smashed them all around the ground. And uh, so those are the Australia-India links. There's also the notable match figures of 8 for 97 for Steve Harmison at Lords, which was, you know, in 2005, which was the early sign that something was on, even though England lost that test match. It was... There was some savagery in the bowling that said that, you know, maybe England were going to be able to compete. And then there's a last one that I want to talk about particularly because this is Mushtaq Mohammed, who was Pakistan's captain in the 1970s. And Pakistan went to the West Indies and took them on in an era when the West Indies did not lose matches at home. They played West Indies in Port of Spain in 1977. And in one of the great all-round performances, Mushtaq Mohammed made 121 in the first dig and then took five for 28 to knock the West Indies over cheaply and set a big lead, then made 56 in the second dig to extend the lead and took three for 69 while bowling them out. So in the match, 177 runs and eight for 97 in what is ranked one of the most significant all-round performances in the history of the game. Very nicely done, Jeff. 897 for Richard Johnson. I must admit I was smiling when you mentioned Steve Harmison because what I know and what you don't is that he comes up a couple more times before we're going to be done today. A couple more times? A couple more. It seems excessive. This, I mean, like, I don't mind a bit of Steve Harmison, but I don't know if I need that much Steve Harmison. There's going to be three, no fewer, than three mentions of Steve Harmison on Storytime today. What's next, Jeff? Oh, God. Uh, what's next? A 187 from Simon, open inverted commas, old, close inverted commas, Trafford, um, who took a lovely picture of a bird that I saw pop up on Instagram because we now have an Instagram account which you can follow us on, which we occasionally remember to post things on. I just happened to notice when I opened it this morning, there's Simon Trafford, there's some sort of soaring hawk or whatnot, which he managed to take a picture of, which was perfectly in focus and starkly presented against the sky. The number from Simon is $1.87. We talked recently about Stan McCabe's 187 that he made during the Bodyline series. Um, we also talked about Stan McCabe falling off a cliff while getting rid of a dead possum, um, which is a true story. So if you think I made that up, I did not. Strange things happen in the game of cricket. But what have you that is not in a Stan McCabe adjacent area, Adam? Would it surprise you to know that we're going to talk more about Stan McCabe's death later in the show as well? (laughs) (laughs) Was Steve Harmison involved? (laughs) Bit of a teaser. Did he put Uh, the possum there? (laughs) No, 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 he didn't. But uh, yeah, we're we're going to we're going to close the show with some. Uh, morbidity. Um, that's a what a great teaser that is. Uh, Simon Trafford, okay, who's a great yeah. correspondent of ours as well, beautiful photographer. I thought I would mention, given we've we've gone through a couple of different 187s in the past, uh, and that India are playing Australia this week. Shikhar Dhawan's mm. maiden debut century, which to me only reinforces how crazy it is that he's absent in this series. So Dewan makes 187 off just 174 balls in that disastrous tour for Australia. I remember watching it very closely in Canberra because Nathan Lyon was left out of the second test, brought and famously sort of drops, you know, out of kind of nowhere really after uh, the first test there at Chennai, comes back for the third test match and then this bloke on debut goes bonkers alongside Murali Vijay. They put on 289 for the first wicket and I'm just thinking to myself, 
this is the last time we're ever going to see Nathan play for Australia. At that point, I wasn't a journalist. I was purely someone who'd played club cricket with Nathan, you know, felt this affinity with this guy, and it was all going to be over uh, within a couple of years. Well, in the end, that wasn't the case. It's Darwin's career that didn't really stretch the test of time. But looking back at it, he made seven tonnes in 58 hits in test cricket. I mean, it's a fantastic strike rate. And, of course, he showed that he could do it against you know, strong attacks like Australia's. And I know he had a, a poor run of form in, in the longer form of the game before he was left out uh, in the middle of 2018. But that's the last time that he's played a test match. So I just thought that was worth noting as we head into another Australia-India series that, yeah, if he were there, it would be a lot more explosive. But at the moment, white ball only. I, I remember that innings strikingly because he still holds the record doesn't he for the fastest hundred on debut it was mm. either 89 or 87 deliveries I can't remember which but it's remains the record to this day and it's not like he was playing one day style you know pogoing it over the leg side and and so on it was all along the carpet it was all cuts and drives you know left-hander so pretty much everything he scored was between cover and backward point and he just kept going there all day it like just kept hitting the gaps again and again it was an extraordinary innings of control and and really really <laughs> knocked the Australians around so 187 that sounds like a good number to go with for an Australia India week for Simon Trafford he can let us know. He can send us a message if he wants us to keep hunting for his number. Jeff, uh, a few minutes ago we were talking about 897. Well, now we've got 797, and you couldn't make it up. We, we would never tamper with the integrity of your spreadsheet. And 897 and 797, in this case from Will Cuxon, have come in with only one number in between. It, it's quite remarkable. It's another Australian number. That's the only clue. And uh, I'll let you have a crack at it first. Well, you can't tamper with the integrity of my spreadsheet. Um, for, for those who want an insight into our relationship, I, I refuse to give Adam access to the spreadsheet. <laughs> it's all mine. It's my domain. Um, <laughs> I, I want to make sure that no, nothing is out of place and everything is where I left it. It's like, it's like in the movie Misery, you know, when she leaves the house and comes back and realises the ceramic penguin is facing north when it's normally facing south and that means that he's been out of his room. Yeah, it's like that. I've got my eye on you, don't worry. 797. Well, we, we got the vibe from Will Cuxon that this was about a freakish sequence, right? Something happening one after another, 797. And so and it has an Australian connection, so it's not something like uh, Muralitha and taking seven for 97 in an innings against South Africa. So when I was looking for sequences, I was looking at some some averages for, for series, and this is where things started to get interesting because... Only last week I was I was talking to Jim Maxwell about Jack Fingleton because that's what happens when you hang out with Jim Maxwell. Um, <laughs> and, and we were talking about centuries in consecutive innings. Jack Fingleton, who has the scoreboard named after him at Monica Oval, which I know Adam's a big fan of, Monica and the scoreboard, um, and the fact that it was trucked up from the MCG on, you know, on the back of a lorry. Jack Fingleton made four centuries in consecutive innings, which was at the time a record in Test cricket. He did this in 1936, the first to do it. Uh, Alan Melville, the South African batsman, got four in a row against England in 1947. And then the next year in 48, Everton Weeks set a new record by scoring five in consecutive innings against England and India and should have had six, but he got fired by a local umpire given run out for 90 in his sixth innings in that sequence and then much later in the early 2000s Raul Dravid made four in a row as well so 
they're still the only other couple of players to, to get to four in a row that Jack Finkelton did first. So when Australia went to South Africa in 1936, Jack Finkelton had an ordinary-ish start, made two and then 36 not out in the first test in Durban. Then he made 62 and 40 at Joburg, which is 100 in the match, but not 100 in an innings. And then he goes on his run. He peels off 112 in Cape Town, 108 in Joburg and back to Durban for 118. That's in February. And then December that year, the first innings of the Ashes series at the Gabba, he makes an even 100 against England and then follows up with a duck in the second dig. Why not? You've already made four in a row. But interestingly, in the South African series, if you take his average across that series where he starts peeling off the tons, it is 79.7, which is the 797 of Will Cuxon. That's my bid. It's a good one. It's a good one. I like it a lot. And of course, uh, Jack Finkelton, after he uh, finished up as a professional cricketer or as an Australian cricketer, as I, I should probably put it, wasn't really that professional at the time, but he was certainly an international player for a long period. Uh, he was a, an acclaimed journalist in the in the Canberra Press Gallery. And Will Cuxon's a, a lovely young writer as well. He has just filed a, a feature article to The Inner Sanctum, I think it's called. He interviewed me for it about bubble life and, and living in... Um, living in in bubbles uh, uh, to uh, get the show on the road in COVID times, and, and that's gone up today. We're so well done, in bubbles. <laughs> well, well, well in bubbles. <laughs> that, that reminds me of my football. Oh yes, yes. Well, I, well yeah. Well, I was a season ticket holder at West Ham for a couple of years when I lived in the UK mm. uh, earlier in this uh, in this decade. And uh, well, yes, we used to blow bubbles everywhere. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be. Um, uh, it's, it's put this way. It was a season ticket. I was happy to relinquish in more recent times. Anyway, that's that's a whole. Whole different Why story and a whole different sport. You, anything sort of anything innocent or nice that you say in that sort of you know London accent sounds very menacing. Yes. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it is, but it, you're like, what is that code for? How are you? What kind of murder are you going to do to me? Yeah, perhaps so. In the end, I think I found the, a happier place for me, which was the far more gentler climbs of non-league football in Dulwich Hamlet. Can't wait to get back there uh, at some point <laughs> early next year. It made me think of it because there is... Um, I, I'm struggling to remember the name of it. Maybe it's called The Hitman or something fairly um, unimaginative. But there's a movie that Terence Stamp is in, um, who you may know from Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, where he's playing an ex-London sort of crime organisation hitman who has to go into hiding after grassing at a trial. And as he's leaving the court where he gives testimony at the start, there's a whole bunch of a whole bunch of tough cockneys who he's put away and they all stand up in the dock and they start singing him the song. They start singing, we'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. And it's the most threatening thing you've ever, I mean, it's supposed to be, but it's it's masterful how they turn this cheerful song into this immense sense of threat. Um, so that's what that's what Cockney accents can do. We're all learning lessons here today. So Will Cuxon, 797. Next up, we've got 493 from Tom Stewart. I must admit, I'm not sure which Tom Stewart this is. This must, this must be a, an edited number. So um, one of the two Tom Stewarts mm. has sent us 493, and thank you for it. For this one, I just thought it was worth telling briefly, albeit the story of Jeff Cook, who's a, kind of the, the godfather of Durham County Cricket Club. So he played for England 13 times uh, in the early 80s, including in the 82-83 Ashes series, and sort of got his opportunity when a number of England players were banned uh, through that Rebel Tour period of time. And he stopped playing professional cricket by the end of the, end of the 80s, and that was just when Durham was... 
uh, admitted to the county championship. They played their first season, of course, in, in 1992. He was the director of cricket then. He eventually became the coach in the 2000s. They won a bunch of silverware uh, under his tutelage, uh, the county championship, most famously in 2008, 2009, back-to-back. And players from that era just love Jeff Cook, and not just players either, almost anyone from that part of England, they credit him with being the secret to their success, developing young players. He actually had a heart attack in in 2013, which sort of stunned locals because he's known as being one of the fittest blokes going around, but he's still involved in the game, involved at the club. Um, They won the county championship later in in the season where he had that heart attack, but he stepped back and is now, I think he's running the academy or running the youth academy or something like that. But yeah, just thought it was worth mentioning. A, A guy who has been, you know, working his ass off in the Shires in his post-playing career. So he's almost now better known for what he's done off the field compared to being an English player. But he was uh, the 493rd English cricketer when he did debut back in 1981. Thank you, Adam. Uh, Everybody loves Jeff Cook. Everybody loves... Jeff's cooking um, because I make a very nice creamy pasta. Um, so Remember that time you? I'm not sure if we mentioned this in the show or whether we mentioned it somewhere else. But there was when we were when we were hard up. Uh, I know where you're going with this immediately. <laughs> when we were hard up in 2015 and didn't have a didn't really have a dollar to rub rub together when we were getting around England. I, I don't remember why, but we didn't have. Was it that we missed dinner the night before or something ridiculous? And we were staying at a mate's place in, in Manchester, Foxy's place. And then Jeff says, you know what? I'll cook. I'll look after dinner on night one. And makes this massive, mm-hmm. massive tub of pasta, spaghetti. But thought, you know what? There's not enough carbs in here. I'm going to put an entire bag of potatoes in the pasta <laughs> to make sure we get nourished, to make sure we get full. <laughs> look, it seemed important at the time. There was the, the classic mistake of going to the supermarket hungry um, or starving and then <laughs> And then just thinking, look, just put it all in. Why not just get some of everything and mix it all together? And after eating a couple of kilos of it, it didn't do me any harm. That's all I'll say. Simpler times. So <laughs> they, they were something times anyway. Yeah. So next on our list, a double header. I love these when a couple of different people come in with the same number, but maybe a totally different idea about what it means. Vivek Nayak and Dom Philp have both come in with $2.81. And if you've listened to this show at all, you'll know that two eighty one is a very special number to me. You'll know that it's the number that I see floating in the sky sometimes. <laughs> Venga Pirapu Venkata Sai Laxman made 281 at Eden Gardens in Kolkata in 2001 while following on against Australia in the greatest test match of all time. I'm happy to call it. Uh, other people may argue, but they're wrong because, look, it was ridiculous in every possible way. Um, Australia made 440 after a hat-trick, falling in a heap, recovering, lower order, rear guard, all the rest of it. India bowled out for 171, follow on, four wickets down, not enough on the board, and then Dravid and Laxman put together that partnership of 360, whatever it was, Laxman 281, the highest score by an Indian batsman at the time, going past Gavaskas 236, Dravid made 180. And if anybody could find, you know, the full five days of footage of that match, I will pay you untold amounts of money because I've never been able to find anything more than about an hour of extended highlights yeah. of the Laxman innings. 
listened to it all on radio, couldn't see it live. And some of that on-driving of Shane Warne out of the rough outside the right-hander's leg stump is just absurd. But I, one day I want to be able to sit down and watch it all. Does it exist? If it's out there, get it for me and I will give you a king's ransom. There's a really good um, one-hour package of that test match on YouTube, which I watched a few weeks ago, actually, while I was in quarantine. Maybe it was a few months ago. It feels that long. Where um, I don't think I'm giving too much away. We've, we've uh, seeded this a fair bit on social media in recent weeks. But if you want to learn more about the 2001 Australia India series, you might want to also follow the greatest season that was podcast feed. I'm almost certain that'll be Vivek Nayak's number. Vic, as I've always known him, uh, on the message boards. Vic and I first became pals in 2001, so that ties together really well. A fellow Hawthorne diehard, and he loves his cricket, and he's been uh, ever so kind to join the final word on Patreon, so that'll be Laxman. I'm, I'm sure of it for Vic. And Jeff, for Don Philp, I've got a story that you're going to enjoy an awful lot. All right, Jeff. Yes, it had to be a D.O.B., a dusty old bastard, John War. Have you ever heard of John War before, Jeff? Because I don't. I, I'd never heard of John War until uh, getting into this. Only on our show a couple of months ago, where I think he came up tangentially. I I should specify for people who like to visualise words that it's W A. Double R, not W A U G H. Yes. So not a Stephen slash Mark slash Evelyn War, but uh, John War. If he were Spanish, War. <laughs> and normally the, the, the DOBs, the Dusty Old Bastards, are related to their cap number, right? It's the easy way to get into their stories. But mm. he was cap number 354, not 281. 281 comes a, a little bit later. So. Okay. So you really are spicing things up. I am. I am spicing things up in the bedroom of uh, story time, getting you to wear a mask or something. Uh, he was a Middlesex senior. I've been doing that for months. It, it has not been erotic, I can tell you. <laughs> Just the first thing that came to mind. Uh, he was a yeah. He was a he was a gun seamer for Middlesex through the fifties. Fantastic record. I think he averaged like twenty odd and took like. 800 first-class wickets and has that kind of career. But it's when he went to Australia in 1950-51 that I thought was worth mentioning to you, Jeff, and why you'll find it interesting. So okay. he he gets picked for two test matches, and it's fair to say it doesn't go very well. He gets torn apart by the Australians. His figures on debut are none for 142, which at the time are the worst debut figures ever recorded in test cricket. Of course, that's until Bryce McGain came along and banked none for 149 in 2009, so you know, half a century later. But they picked him again. Um, again. He'll yeah. never do it again. <laughs> but they, they picked him again after that. So a, a vote of faith in, in the young man, John War. He did pick up a wicket in that test, albeit just the one, Ian Johnson. So across two test matches, he conceded 281 runs for one wicket, thus a bowling average of 281, which was the worst mm. in the history of test cricket until... Uh, Sri Lanka's Roger Widjasiriya came around in the mid-80s uh, and it got, it got bettered again by a final word favourite. Indeed, a story we were digging into a couple of months ago, Ravi Bapara. His uh, bowling average was 290 in test cricket, which is bizarre when you consider what an effective seamer he's been along the way. But John War, so came home from that trip with, yes, the bowling average of 281 in test cricket and funnily enough was never called upon again uh, to, to wear the three lines, so to speak. Wisdom described him as someone who tried hard and cheerfully. 
which is a nice way of saying he's a pretty bloody good bloke. Uh, but Jim Swanton, the famous chronicler of the game, he told a story also, I think it was in the Almanac, where they would go past him when they were on the tour. This must have been the journalists. And they would hum at him the ancient and modern hymn number 281. <laughs> so Swanton goes on to say, the, the lyrics include, Lead us, Heavenly Father, lead us, with the emphasis on the lines, Lone and dreary, faint and weary. <laughs> and he goes on to note that uh, war was a prime virtue, was that he never seemed either faint nor weary on or off the field. Laughter was seldom far away when he was about, which meant that he went on to have this sort of post-cricketing life as an after-dinner speaker, and he was so popular that the Australian Cricket Board decided that he would be their representative in London in the 1980s, and he was also the, the president of the MCC at Lords from 1987 mm. to 1988. He passed away aged 88 in 2016, but yes, a, a big contribution to the game across his life. Unfortunately, uh, had those uh, that chastening experience in Australia in 1950-51, but sounds like one of the real good guys to play John War, cap number 354. But for our interest, 281 was his bowling average. Thank you, Adam. I enjoyed that DOB story. Can I also just note for the record that the monitor in the press box has started playing extended highlights of the um, Big Bash match between Adelaide and Hobart and Peter Siddle is currently one wicket into the eventual five-wicket bag <laughs> that he will take in this match. Lap it up. So I am I am going to be flying the flag at full mast by the end of the show. I'll, I'll keep you updated. They're three for 93 at the moment on the replay. Our final new number for this show comes from Chris Arkell, not the nickname of Derek Randall. The number is $5.15, and the clue is pads and pies what might that suggest is it about Collingwood is it about terrible bowling is it about I don't know you had a look at this one Adam where'd you go <laughs> well 5 for 15 is a analysis bowling analysis that you do know and I know as well Vernon Philander on debut when they bowled out Australia for oh, 47 yes. at Cape Town and I thought the pads and pies might be due to the fact that he had a lot of leg before wicket decisions go his way across his brilliant test okay. career and he did have a fair bit of timber as well so he might have enjoyed a pile too so i reckon that might be where chris That's arkell's going for pads and because he didn't bowl pies nothing not at all like it, it does make it does make me think you know that there's got to be a bad bowler involved in there somewhere but maybe it is the who ate all the underscore yeah fill that in fill that blank with pies and that does actually make a fair bit more sense i think with Vern, with with big Vern, it was less about the pies and more about the 43 castle lagers at the end of the day before he'd hop on twitter um and then start claiming that his account was hacked and that that might that might have um accounted for the the padding around the middle um not that any of us are in a position to judge i no. find as as we as we get older <laughs> yeah as we start a new summer of press box lunches and all the rest uh, i just wanted to mention one other 515 so an, an Australia India link given that that's the series that's about to start so Gavin Robertson Siddle's back on Siddle's back on he's got one for 11 just thought you'd want to know right okay Carry on. I'll, I'll wait till you are as you said oh, before full mast in a couple of minutes he, he's coming into bowl oh it's ricocheted off the pads and it's bowled him <laughs> oh right he's out for 15 what a beauty Siddle cramped him for a room trying to back away down the leg side got his reward the hair's looking great too he's still got the peroxide going lovely stuff lovely stuff well uh, the, the other 515 I wanted to just quickly get in here is um, yeah it, it's a runs conceded figure but uh, 
a good story in Australia-India mm. exchanges, which is Gavin Robertson. Robbo, uh, as he's known, I'm, I'm not sure that pads and pies work. <laughs> oh, another was, triumph from Australians. We really worked on that one. That's yes, good stuff. Yes, said by me, Colo. Anyway, as it is. So pads and pies don't work because, you know, he, he, he certainly didn't bowl pies. But just wanted to sort of note that his is an excellent story. I mean, he walks out on debut having only played one Shield game the previous year, I should add, plays a Shield game in Adelaide, takes a bag, they pick him out of nowhere to go to India. The reason he wasn't playing Shield cricket at the time was that he got himself a full-time job and was sort of preparing for life after cricket. Yeah, he played for Australia back in 1994, but he sort of, by that stage of his career, he was getting on with it a little bit. But he was still considered to be uh, the best finger spinner in Australia, taken to India when they were playing three spinners, of course, in 1998. And that, that got him a chance to debut. Uh, and he did so, so so nicely with bat and ball, making a, a four-and-a-half-hour half-century uh, and then bowling really well in that first test. He was Australia's leading wicket-taker on that tour, out-bowling Shane Warne comprehensively, really. Uh, and uh, he's told us this story for the greatest season it was. And again, just a small little plug on the way out here that how he went from 1994 to 1998 is well worth listening to. So if you want to learn more about the, the Gavin Robertson Australia-India story from 1998, jump onto the other feed that I'm involved in and you're going to hear a couple of interesting stories over the next month or two. Loves a plug, Adam Collins. Popular in the bath. That is the end of our new numbers for Nerd Pledge for this show. If you want to send us a Nerd Pledge number, it's very easy. You get on patreon.com slash the final word spelt p-a-t-r-e-o-n that website and uh, if you get there you can choose your amount you can set your monthly max you can be part of the fun there's a lot of other stuff happening on that page and you can help us keep the show going thanks to everyone who's doing that we've got to revisit some of the numbers we didn't get the last few weeks and uh Foremost among these is one we've been battling away with for a few weeks now from Kieran O'Kane. It was an even seven bucks, seven zero zero. And look, we went to a lot of places. We looked at a lot of things. None of them were right. Uh, but Kieran has been enjoying all of the uh, places that we have gone, has given us a little bit more of a clue saying that it involves a player who is not a final word favourite, Although I'd, I'd dispute that now that I know what the answer is. Certainly on Adam's behalf. I don't know what's happening here with the music that started up in the background, but it's getting very dramatic here at the Adelaide Oval. I feel like I'm a WWE announcer <laughs> doing this question. <laughs> he said, a great player to watch, but maybe seen as a bit dull. The pledge also links Bob Willis to Ishant Sharma. How did you go, Adam? Yeah, once I got the Ishant Sharma clue, I finally found my way uh, through this uh, because we were really nowhere near it. I mean, it's Alistair Cook, isn't it? But why is it Alistair Cook? Well, he picked up a test wicket. It was that of Ishant Sharma. He was doing an impersonation of Bob Willis at the time. He only bowled a few overs in test cricket, which means that his bowling average in that form of the game is an even seven. So seven zero zero. Alistair Cook via Ishant Sharma, who picked him up 12 times in test cricket, I should add. No one got Cook out more in test than Ishant. But I digress. Ishant Sharma, Bob Willis, Alistair Cook, Kieran O'Kane, seven zero zero. We got there. <laughs> and hilarious when you say that Ravi Bapara is averaging two ninety with the ball in Test cricket, and Alistair Cook comes along and averages seven. Um, just, just a little extra insult. <laughs> yeah, for his great mate there. Uh, those two played so much cricket together at Essex. I'm sure that would have come up over the bar at different times through their uh, careers together. The three fifty four for Dane Hanstead. He wanted us to look at tour matches. I was looking at Australia Gloucestershire in 1997. Dane says, uh, Jeff, you were correct in guessing that I'm Victorian. 
Victorian, that I was six years old within the span of time you referenced, and my first first class match was a tour match. However, uh, it was not that match that you mentioned. A gentle nudge in the right direction is that I was and still am living in northeast Victoria, a <laughs> great part of the world, and didn't have to travel far to get to the game. Mm, what have you got, Adam? Mm, that nudge got me right there. Got me to Wangaratta. <laughs> got me to Wangaratta. What do they say when you're going to Ballarat? You're at Bacchus. You, anyway, I probably shouldn't go on with that. It's a bit lewd. Uh, but Wangaratta, well, I suppose lewd in its own way, uh, Jeff, <laughs> is what the link is here, and I'm, I'm looking forward to telling this story. There was famously a bottle shop in Wangaratta named Wang Liquor. So, you know, make of that what you will. Um, also, the, also that the sidearm, as called in England, the dog thrower in the nets, is routinely referred to in Australia as the wanger. Thus, you know, Justin Langer with the wanger has been quite a feature of the last couple of days that I've spent at the nets. And I think I did make a reference today to JL going to Wangaratta when he was just giving the ball a good wang. So there's a fair bit of wang going around at the moment, I suppose. Yes, uh, there is. Right. So why is Wangaratta relevant uh, to 354? Well, it's because of a century that I've spent a lot of time watching on YouTube and talking about on, on Twitter over the years. It's Graham Vimpani's century. He's 133, he made at Wangaratta for Victoria against the Turing West Indians in 96-97 was out of a Victorian tally of 354. So Victoria lose that game but all anyone really remembers it for is, is Vimpani. Uh, sort of all of these years I've been thinking that he was hard done by not getting called up to the national squad. I think I just had it in the back of my mind that He'd been shafted as a Victorian. You know, you get into this mindset as a younger bloke. But really, it was just that one season where he excelled. He averaged 50 in 96-97 and made three centuries. Of course, a pretty tough team to get into through that era. But after that, it was all pretty sketchy. He averaged 30 overall in in first-class cricket, and it was all over a couple of years after that. And then he bobbed up again in, I think it was 2003, playing for Oakley in the Subbies, which is in our our competition, which I used to play in for Endeavour Hills. And he went on to win the comp there. And and Googling a little bit about where it went afterwards for Graham Vimpani. He left the game for more than a decade, came out of retirement in 2018-19 for Oakley again, and they won the flag, and he hit the winning runs when they won the premiership uh, last year in 2018-19. So a nice end to his cricketing story. But yes, the high point was that 133 he made for Victoria against the the, the fearsome West Indies attack. And I suppose, uh, Jeff, the only other point I'd make out of this is that a column which I meant to write years ago, never got around to it, and Shannon Gill uh, did instead, is that there are these fantastic rural venues, cricketing, you know, heartland, if you like, where they have played some first-class cricket over the years. They, they've played a couple of games in Wangaratta, one in the mid-'80s and then this game in 1996. But, I, I mean, going back three or four years when Victoria were having to play some home games in the top end and playing home games as away games, and uh, it did, well, it just didn't quite make sense to me that why wouldn't you try and spruce up you know, a couple of these rural venues in a way that New South Wales have done with uh, the grounds they use as outgrounds, if you like. And certainly you see a lot of that in the county championship. And yeah, Wangaratta was up to scratch then, and I'm sure it could be again in the future. And it was the scene of, yeah, the Vimpani 133. And I'm sure that's what Dane Hanstead's talking about. Thank you, Adam. Uh, Christopher Byrne took us gently by the hand and led us to the answer <laughs> for the 221 that we were working on for a while in that he was saying it was 2-2-1 but should have been 2-11, something like that. It was, it was getting a bit confusing for us. Um, Chris said it's not. But he'd already told us it wasn't batting or bowling figures. But the thing that got me over the line was he said, 
I still think it's pretty memorable. In my mind, one of the two most famous scoreboard images in English cricket, the other being the Headingley 1981 betting odds. And that flashed up in my mind. 2-2-1 is the 22 runs required from one ball that South Africa needed after a rain delay readjustment of the score after having needed whatever it was, 22 from 15 balls or whatever it was, became 22 from one ball. And that was the um, the outrage that brought about the introduction of the Duckworth-Lewis system to recalculate rain-affected scores in cricket. Am I right? Yep, you're definitely right there. So, yeah, the semi-final of the 92 World Cup, it sort of was the, the precursor to net run rate, which hurt South Africa in the 99 World Cup because net run rate was what they... They fell foul of uh, with Australia when they were they were tied um, at the end of the the semi final Super Six semi final and all the rest of it. But yeah, as you say, the Duckworth Lewis system they needed to find a replacement because it wasn't sustainable. And uh, yeah, twenty two off one that uh, defining image on the old SCG scoreboard. So thank you, Christopher Byrne, for leading us down the path and getting us there. Next up in revisit, Sam Ashworth one nine one. We talked about Clem Hill two weeks ago. We talked about Walter Mead last weekend. Sam replied, unfortunately, that we missed the mark. His far less vague clue is, I can't afford 985. And that got me thinking, what does 985 <laughs> mean? And I'm like, oh, there's a reason why. There's a reason why uh, we, we store all this information in the back of our minds, Jeff. I knew that 985 was the number of wickets that Glen Chapel had taken uh, for Lancashire, or taken, sorry, in first-class cricket. And it didn't take me long to work out that he was also the 191st one-day international cricketer for England. And it's a sort of a sad story, really, that the 191 component of this. He, he gets his one-day debut in 2006 in Belfast against Ireland after being ever so close to making his bow 10 years earlier uh, when he was kind of at the peak of his powers. But finally gets there in 2006 when he's probably 35 or 36 or something like that. And sure enough, he breaks down after four overs. But he did get recognised as an English international for that one uh, limited overs international game that he played. And then really his legacies at Lancashire where 2011 he led them to the promised land. After all those years waiting, they finally uh, won the title in their own right. Um, He led them magnificently that year, taking 55 wickets along the way he pushed and pushed and pushed towards 1000 he kept playing he wouldn't retire I think he was the bowling assistant coach while still playing a couple of games a year to to try and get to 1000 in the end he he fell 15 short when he pulled the plug at the end of 2015 at age 41 he also made nearly 9000 first class runs so he's a pretty decent batsman 15 centuries in four day cricket and as it happens the next man who will take 1000 first class wickets was his old teammate from Lakes he would have shared the new ball with Jimmy Anderson many times when uh, Jimmy was a younger man. Well, Jimmy's on 975 first-class wickets at the moment, and barring some horrible injury, you'd say that in the next 12 months or so, or hopefully, well, almost certainly before that, given he's off to Sri Lanka with the England team soon, and they're playing in India after that, uh, Jimmy will will end up posting his 1,000th first-class wicket, which, yeah, Chapel fell 15 short of. Thank you, Adam. Uh, double Chapel, because we're going to go from Glenn Chapel to Samuel Chapel, our pledger, who sent through... $3.43 and said that it was a bit political. We looked at a few options last week about angel numbers and Alan Wharton, which <laughs> Sam enjoyed. He said, we're in the right area with English first-class cricket. Specifically, it's a bowling figure and it's a bit political, but I, in my digging on this, haven't got anywhere as yet and I don't think you have either. And no. sometimes we like to throw one to the crowd, you know, a bit of bit of meat to the lions, 
uh, hurl it into the enclosure. So if anyone would like to rip into 343 over the next uh, week or so and let us know, drop us a message. We'll keep looking as well. But uh, we invite you to search RJ's 291. We were talking about a couple of ODI matches that were tied in 1991 involving uh, the West Indies and India, uh, which RJ also enjoyed hearing about and said, that's not the answer, but it's about a player who recently announced retirement from international cricket and it signifies the most iconic innings he played and its associated impact. How'd you go? Well, I, I worked out that RJ's pledge came through in the middle of August, which was the day that MS Dhoni uh, pulled the pin from international cricket. So working through that, MS Dhoni's most iconic innings was the 91 not out that he made from 78 balls in the 2011 World Cup final, of course, finishing it with that lavish helicopter six. And that led India to their second World Cup win, thus 2-91. Uh, and 91. I reckon I've got it. That's very good. I like that. You've done well. The 91, yes, because the original clue was that the the 91 influenced the two. Yes. And so it did. The 91 made the two happen. Lovely stuff. Thank you, RJ. Thank you, Adam. Righto. Tim Minchin, Jeff, we're here again. The 272 via the, <laughs> via the 216. Last week, our most recent attempt at this revolved around the runs that Lloyd Pope conceded uh, it was it was a long shot and, and it was wrong as Tim it was a great answer <laughs> it was a bloody good answer except as Tim points out uh, that happened after he made the pledge yes yes which also happened to be on August the 15th my birthday which is when MS Dhoni retired I should add uh, on his birthday on his birthday on his birthday, birthday. birthday. MS Dhoni's retired on his birthday uh, we had that from Sam Ashworth we mentioned before on 191 he goes I can't help but do the voice you guys have broken me whenever he talks about someone having their birthday birthday. Uh, right, so back to Tim Minchin. So he enjoyed the tangential mm. story. He enjoyed the tenuous links. Uh, but in this case, we were incorrect. He enjoyed learning about Clary's second worst day as well as the hard graft from Lloyd Pope. Um, but noting that his clue came in on August 15, that couldn't be correct, as you said, Jeff. Right, so moving this forward a little bit. 272 was a number achieved by someone bowling leg spin, but they are not remembered as a leg spinner. If this person's achievement is 272, it's absolutely dwarfed by Clary's equivalent achievement of 2165231. (laughs) And if you actually mention the person who was to blame, by which I mean Grimmett not going past 216 wickets, you'll identify the correct 272. And have a think about why I identified... That particular song, of course, he wrote us yes. uh, a, an ode to Clary Grimmett via uh, the Paul Kelly Bradman song last week. And in the end, Jeff, that was enough. Well, you'd hope that would be enough. There are about three gimmies in, in that one alone. And it was it was just bad cryptic management by me that didn't get it. Because the, the original clue was don't blame Frank, which means don't blame Frank Ward, the leg spinner that Bradman preferred to Clary Grimmett. And so that should have led me to believe, well, who do you blame? You blame Bradman. Of course you do, because it was his decision and it was his fault. Oh, so Frank Ward bowled really well in a testimonial game. Well, so fucking what? (laughs) I bowled really well in some backyard cricket on the weekend. Is that going to get me in? No, it's not. Testimonial game. Jesus, Don. Anyway, you blame Bradman for that decision because that was his decision. And it's also one of those little tidbits that you sits in your mind that you don't quite forget is that Bradman didn't bowl much but when he did roll the arm over 
he was a leg spinner. So he should have known. He should have had more sympathy for the, the greatest the greatest the game has ever seen. But when Bradman did bowl, didn't do a lot of it in first-class cricket, even less in test cricket, only bowled 160-odd deliveries in test cricket. But when he bowled, he did pick up two wickets and he did concede 72 runs. Bradman's return with the ball in test cricket is 272 and Clary's return is 216 for 5,231. <laughs> that's the difference and that's the number. Tim Mitchum. It is correct, and that's great. And I just want to say, Jeff, that the day you're sitting there recording in Adelaide, it's the 16th of December. On the 16th of December, 90 years ago, so 90 years ago to the day, at Adelaide Oval, Don Bradman took his first test wicket, uh, which was that of Ivan Barrow, the West Indian wicketkeeper. And the second time he bowled in... So that was the first time he got a trundle in, in test cricket. The mm. second time he bowled, he also picked up a wicket in the 1933 uh, bodyline uh, test match. And who did he knock over? None other than Wally Hammond. He bowled him. Bowled him for 85. So two... Pretty good uh, wickets to start, uh, but it didn't get any better than that. He, he never took another scalp at test level. But, yeah, I like that. 90 years ago to the time of recording, out the glass where you're looking right now, Jeff, there would have been yeah. a young Don Bradman turning one past the edge of Ivan Barrow and trapping him leg before wicket. Remarkable. I'm, I'm looking at that very spot where the betrayal of Australian leg spinning was seeded, <laughs> where it began, uh, all the way back to the beginning 90 years ago. Thanks, Tim, for your patience. Uh, Graham B's $3.54. We were talking about Dinesh Chandamal, who made 354 this year in August, which Graham says, surprisingly, it's not that. However, three for 54 was taken twice by a bowler in two different series and at opposite ends of the series, the first match and the last match. The second time, he took two wickets in two balls as part of that three. What did you make of it? Yeah, Jeff, I, I didn't take me long to get here. Uh, and and it, again, it's Steve Harmison. Uh, so Steve Harmison's three for 54 at Lords in the second dig of the 2005 Ashes Test match. So everybody remembers the five on the first day, but three in the second to make up those match figures of eight for ninety-seven, which came up earlier. Uh, and then in Remarkable. the and then in the last innings of the two thousand and nine Ashes. So remember, England need to win there. If they don't win there, Australia retain the Ashes. If I recall correctly, it was going into the last Test, one all, all to play for uh, there at the Oval. So even though two thousand and five was the series, it was a it was a pretty good contest in in two thousand and nine as well. As far as it going down to the final rubber, anyway, on that final day, Australia were chasing a million. But they, you know, had they been able to batted that time and got to the finish line, they would have retained the Ashes. But Steve Harmison brought back for one last hurrah. He said no. Picked up three for 54. It ended up being his final game for England. A great way to sign off. An Ashes winner for a second time. Well, eight for 97 and then three for 54. And it all comes together. Our last revisit from George Norman, the $10.20. We were looking at a lot of numbers that were 1,020, um, which George says, oh, you were so close, except that I stuffed up and the real number was 102, <laughs> not 10.2. And I was not fit to be in charge of a computer at the time. Which does make me remember Anna uh, Forsyth saying, I don't remember what my nerd pledge refers to because I was drunk when I made it. Um, so, <laughs> look, it's, it's sending us down to some great roads. So we, we, if 
we won't encourage you to do it if you weren't going to do it. But if you are in that state, hop on the computer. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> the other thing that George says is that all our suggestions were good, except they were male players. So where'd you go? Yeah, that helps. And again, George has been just a fantastic uh, a supporter of what we're doing here. I mentioned last week that he sent down that delivery of bread from his bakery, which was so kind of him, uh, and donuts and all the rest. And uh, here we are on my final day in quarantine talking about George again. So 102 for a woman. Look, it, it's been made a series of times in, in, in test cricket, uh, a couple of times in one day. as never in a T20 international. Four times in the Women's Big Bash League, as it happens. Uh, Lizelle Lee, Susie Bates, Beth Mooney, and in innings we watched together, Jeff, Elise Perry, an iconic moment for women's cricket in Australia. The opening oh, weekend of the God, Big is Bash. Is that the one we watched in the pub in Adelaide? We did, at the Union Hotel. We were watching it with Conrad and Polly and Dono, I reckon, and might Dave have been there Brown. as well. And yes, yes. Dave, Dave Brown. Dave Brown was there Dave as well. Is. That's right. So we had a lot of people there who, after play that day, uh, we got down to the pub and had a couple of beers. And the whole pub, what I remember was uh, Elise is on 98. They need four to win. They've chased down 168, well ahead of the uh, well ahead of the 20 over mark. So she'd done it in style. And then she... Uh, thumps a drive down the ground four runs straight back over the bowler's head if I recall correctly and the whole pub went up as one and that to me was the moment when yeah sure a lot of goods happened with the women's big bash in the last five years but an entire pub of uh, you know, fans that have just left the test match who all got their eyes glued on the television as Elise Perry makes an unbeaten century. Uh, it was a it was a big moment, and, I, and I'm fairly sure that's where, where George is going. And that was, of course, the, the start of her brilliant run where she went on to finish the season with 777 runs. Am I right, Jeff, if I recall? Yeah, 777, um, like the aeroplane, uh, which remains the high watermark for batting in a single season of the... Very good, very good. So the end of the revisit. So again, if you've you've had your number mentioned today, you haven't got it right. If we revisited your number and got it wrong again, send us a note. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. As we round this off, we'd like to confirm or we'd like to um, read out the notes that have confirmed that we have uh, been correct in previous weeks. Uh, Basab Majumdar, he's six to eight. We were right when saying uh, that the five twenty eight related to Capel Dev's figures against Australia at Melbourne in 1981. And his second part of it, the 100, was to do with 100 first-class hundreds. He was also thrilled uh, when we uh, spent some time talking about the 10 for 20 taken by Chatterjee in the Ranji Trophy back in 1957. Not many even in India would have heard of him, but I'm from Calcutta and live not very far from him, and my father played with him. So a nice added dose of nostalgia. Well, no, thank you, Basab, uh, for being a, a brilliant correspondent, an excellent pledge, and I'm glad we got it right. I would like to note that Basab says, uh, I've just watched The Queen's Gambit on Netflix and like that lady, you are both turning out impossible to beat. <laughs> That's the best praise we've ever had. The Beth Harmons of cricket statistical investigation based on clues. Mm, yes, we, we just stare at the ceiling while completely tanked on tranquilizers and watch the numbers form. We're like, oh, it's Wally Hammond. Oh. Sammy Dowd sent us through a note about Adino saying, of course Adam got my nerd pledge right. What else could that number mean? She says, uh, I actually submitted it a month or two before Dino died and after I did it, I considered changing it as I thought it would be too easy, but I never got around to it. And after his death, I felt like my number was meant to be. I was a super fan when I was young and his death affected me greatly. I cried on and off for several days. Uh, it's 
very moving to hear from you, Sammy, and we hope that you've been able to have some nice memories of Dino as well during this time. And to finish off, Jeff, we have Pat Rogers. I seeded this earlier saying we might talk about Stan McCabe's death to end the show, and, well, here we are. Uh, so Pat says that he continues to really enjoy uh, the Storytime episodes and the talk of Clem Hill and his wish to throw Peter McAllister out the window in 1912 has a couple of nice links. Hill, Pat says, himself was thrown from a Melbourne tram and died soon after in 1945 in a strange and tragic accident that he's written about on the Raw. So I'm going to... Uh, tweet that out after I've had a chance to read it properly but Clem Hill died after being thrown out of a tram who would have thunk it and then the recent final word story of Stan McCabe's death having thrown the possum down the gully at the back of his house that's uh, another very strange end for two Australian cricketers another favourite Clem Hill piece of trivia for Pat is that he was born during the first test match during 1877 while his father was scoring a first class century at where you are today Jeff Adelaide Oval. Ah, the tides of history. <laughs> Clem Hill being born, Don Bradman learning how to bowl, uh, Cameron Green smashing a pull shot. It all happened right here where the final words story time was recorded for you today with the accompaniment of the PA system in the background. I think that's it. Those those are our story time tales. We'll do them again next time story time rolls around in a couple of weeks' time. Send us a number, patron.com slash the final word. And it's time for Adam and Dan Norcross with their interview with Lisa Stalaker. It's winter in the UK and it's a time when a lot of people are experiencing isolation and loneliness through the pandemic, uh, through the winter, and we all recognise how challenging that can be. And and that impact is is even greater on a lot of the young people that the Lord's Taverners try to help. They're a charity that tries to look out for young people living in disadvantaged situations or living with disability. And their programs are are aimed at increasing that social interaction and, and helping create a place for young people to be and, and interact with others and, and feel a sense of value in themselves. So a lot of that's being hurt by the pandemic, by isolation and by the very difficult year that we've had. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the Taverners Cricket Programs have been in operation for 70 years. They're one of the proudest and most important sports charities in the UK and we're proud to be associated with them on the final word in promoting the great work they do. But this year has meant that that's largely came to a halt. And given the currently very challenging circumstances in the UK and no real clarity about uh, what will be happening over the next couple of months. It couldn't be more important to make sure that we continue to support the work that's being done by Lord's Taverners over Christmas and through the New Year period. And we know that it doesn't take an awful lot. I mean, sometimes when you think about donating money to charity and charitable organisations, you might think that it's a a daunting amount of money, but it's not. A a small amount can make a big difference in the lives of a number of disadvantaged uh, young people in the United Kingdom. So we're really glad to be working with the Lord's Taverners and if you are able to help them out they're an organisation that needs some help to uh, to keep trying to mitigate these problems of isolation and loneliness to keep looking out for young people who need it so if you've got the price of a coffee a month to spare about three quid or five dollars um, you can make sure that a child attends a program throughout the year with that level of donation so if you want to get some more information and to work out where to donate you just go to lordstaverners.org or look in the show notes for this episode hi i'm isha Gua, and you're listening to the final word with adam collins and jeff levin 
We pick up our conversation with Lisa Stalaker talking about the 2009 Women's World Cup and the coverage of the women's game during her playing career. I guess, um, you know, I go back to the previous World Cup, which was in South Africa 2005, and they'd only televised the semi-final and the final. Home World Cup, there was... Um, a lot of uh, expectation with the Australian team. We actually had more games televised. There seemed to be more signage. So, you know, being removed and being in South Africa, we didn't feel that we were in a World Cup, whereas in Sydney, we certainly felt it. There was flags throughout the Sydney CBD. Um, but yet we didn't actually have a great campaign, which doesn't help to kind of inspire the local broadcasters and, and media outlets to get on board. So, yeah, that uh, that World Cup 2009, whilst it kind of signified the start of what women's cricket was going to be like from an ICC point of view, as in more marketing money being put in, there was a, certainly a different feel about it, just unfortunately that the Australian team uh, performed pretty poorly. So your career, international career in any case, ends you know at a at a point where professionalism is about to take over. It's like an intersection point, right? Like the semi-pro, but yet to quite get the national contracts. But at the same time, that's when broadcast is starting to ramp up. You see more television. It's the very early seeds of radio. From a personal perspective, did you see that as an opportunity for you to go into broadcast? Like, had you sort of thought this towards the back end of your career or what, what's the sort of the origin story of you ending up in a commentary box? I guess my first opportunity w- was... Um 2010, myself and Elise Perry got invited by Channel 9. There was the ACA All-Stars taking on the Australian T20 side. And that's where Tim Payne actually broke his finger and then obviously has had so many issues since then. But I had five overs and I was sitting next to, uh, in between Tony Gregg and Mark Nicholas. And I was like, wow, this is a pretty good seat in the house, right behind the bowler's arm, all the display units and, and you know, the fruit machine, which gives us all the information. I just was like, this is superb. I want to be part of this. How do I get this gig? So that was probably my first opportunity. But when I retired, it was purely about me knowing when to pull up stumps, probably before someone tapped me on the shoulder. So I was happy where the Australian team had progressed. We were number one in T20. We just won the T20 World Cup in September the previous year in Sri Lanka, won the 50 over World Cup in India and then had already won the Ashes. So I was like, I'd seen a different transition. It was time for the next generation, but it wasn't with an eye on, I want to get into media. This is the perfect time to retire. It was more like maybe the stars align nicely. You know, people always say I missed out on the professional era of women's cricket, but I wouldn't change anything. You know, I'm very glad with the time that uh, I had with the Australian team and and when I called uh, my retirement as well. It's really interesting. We we had a similar, Isha made a similar observation about about her start to broadcasting in that she'd done a little bit here and there, like um, not sort of formal commentary but she'd been in broadcast boxes being interviewed most of the time but it was not, nothing that kind of it wasn't a job that she thought could be accessible for her she didn't directly link it to her gender but she was basically saying well you know I, it wasn't even on my radar whereas blokes often it's very much front of mind isn't it that they're playing at the top level they're major play- I think well as soon as I'm finished here I saw a piece about Tim Payne last week which said well before he migrates to the commentary box like it's a fait accompli that Tim will be a commentator upon his retirement. That wasn't really the same for you. It, had to, it was a different path. Yeah, it was a different path because I, I'd already I had a full-time job. I was working at Cricket New South Wales 
as a high performance coach overseeing all of the junior elite female programs across the state had seen elisa healy and um and elise perry come through at the ripe old ages of 12 and they were still brats then still are now but um the main thing was that female players back then either went back to their job that um they were doing whilst they were playing cricket completed their studies or they became a coach now i had already been a coach for the last 10 years and I stayed in my role for another year based on some advice that was given to me. Don't uproot my whole life, as in retire and leave Cricket New South Wales at the same time. But that year, I, I was pretty restless. I needed a new challenge. And because I'd been around the commentary box and then probably the last year of my playing career, ABC Grandstand gave me an opportunity because they were doing the T20 Big Bash so I started to get into radio commentary through the T20 game because that seemed to be the most obvious place given that I'd played T20 cricket as well and was still playing. And it gave me an insight again in, in broadcast and, and I noticed that there weren't that many females yet so many females love the game, play the game, watch the game. Why can't there be a female voice explaining what we're seeing? So that's probably when I decided to... See, after that year after retirement, I left Cricket New South Wales, not having a full-time job, just hoping that with a bit more freedom, things might fall my way. And, and thankfully it did. Did you have any role models for commentary, either male or female? Had you uh, consumed a lot of commentary and knew roughly what it was you wanted and, and um, style yourself on anyone particularly? Or was it just going to be just you? Probably from 2010 when I had that experience with the Channel 9 commentary team, I noticed or what I made sure I did was every time international cricket was played at the SCG, I'd go and say hello to the guys and I'd sit there and just look at how it, how it all works, what the producer says, how they interact with each other. And maybe I was making subco- um, subconscious notes whilst I was doing it. I just wanted to be around it to understand it because having been a player, I, you certainly don't understand the amount of people that go behind it. After I retired and I wanted to step into commentary, I, I did um, catch up with Ian Chapel. I had a chat to him, just, you know, he was very willing to, to give me some insights, obviously has been part of broadcaster uh, for a very long time and and a very recognisable voice on the world stage. So he gave me a few insights and then it was just trying to figure out who I am and how I commentate. I think probably for the first few years, I was almost mimicking whoever I was in the commentary box with. You know, there were a few people when I was uh, commentating initially in the IPL with Pommy and Bangwa. They said, Lisa, why are you speaking so slow? And it's because (laughs) Pommy actually is very thoughtful and he gets his stories across in certain ways and I was just going with the flow of him and then obviously then I was with Danny Morrison and I'd be crazy as well as him you know you kind of you rub off you know the lead commentator rubs off on you and you start to kind of pick up some mannerisms about them and it's probably been the last maybe year or two that I've kind of got comfortable with who I am I think it's the same thing as a cricketer you kind of model yourself and you want to play like a certain player And then you figure out, hang on, this is my role, this is my style, this is how I play and I'm okay with it. And I'm probably in that position at the moment where I'm comfortable with what I bring to the commentary box, which is different to everyone else and and as it should be. We've had a lot of conversations, a lot of people have been commentators and 
something that comes through very frequently with only a few exceptions is that most people don't get trained in it you sort of arrive in it and you have to kind of work it out was that, was that your experience as well then yeah pretty much they literally sit you in the chair and they go this is the lazy mic uh so if you want to speak to the director uh if you want to cough you do this and then away you go yeah, and obviously when you put your earpiece in and you hear the director and all of the shouting and the instructions whilst you're having a conversation, someone's talking to you and people in the commentary box behind having a chat, yeah, it's it's different. And there is no training. And, and I've also found as well in this industry, they don't necessarily give you feedback within that you know organization they'll always give you the thumbs up everything's going okay and and i've realized that means you haven't stuffed up you've still got a job the next day but as a player as a former player we critiqued our performances so critically and negatively that we always wanted to get better and i came into the commentary box in this industry and i'm like so can i have some feedback and they're going no you're going well and i'm like no 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 but you know i tell me what I can improve I want to get better at it and I know I'm pretty raw and I probably sound terrible and I'd hate to hear some commentary when I first started but um you know you you only learn by practicing it and you know being in in match situations where you you just let your emotions take over but yeah no feedback no training um good luck you came through at a time when uh, I guess Mel Jones was who'd done a little bit in England I suppose earlier but Really, the two of you were coming through at the same time, essentially. I mean, I think about Channel 9 and, and other bits and pieces around that time, ABC and so forth. Can you just talk to, I guess, the importance of having someone else doing it with you, I guess? Like, in England, there's Ebony and Isha, and they've been going on their journey. Ali as well, who comes before them. But in Australia, it's really you and Mel, who stand alone, initially, anyway. What was it like having that, that almost that partner who you could almost bounce off and learn with and progress with and, and share experiences with? Yeah, well, Mel Jones actually had been commentating, I think, since 2003, had first got some opportunities over in Sky when we were playing against England. So every time there was a women's match, she was thrown in. And, you know, for her, I'm sure it was really difficult. It'd be like three matches a year and that's it. So you don't ever get to perfect your craft. Uh, but when when I got the opportunity with Mel Jones, probably more so when it went the WBBL started and we went to Channel 10, it was a chance for us to kind of work together as a team. And obviously we had Andy Marr as well, who was a wonderful uh, lead caller and host. So it was a nice little um, relationship that had built between the three of us. And obviously I was just really starting on my journey and Mel Jones was, was, was the main commentator. And, you know, I'd say something and she'd look at me, giving me the thumbs up and, you know, you're going well or, you know, give me feedback. Or when I did my first toss, um, you know, the great thing that we've got within this, um, this female commentators around the world is we really do support each other. There are messages every day that are coming in when there's an article that someone's written or has gotten a new gig or did a toss for the first time or an interview for the first time. You know, we're really supportive because it is scary because especially having been former players, you're quite happy to answer questions, but then you've got to think about what to ask. You know, that's when you kind of get out of your comfort area and to have those people around you who, who know exactly what you're going through um, is really supportive. Is it actually through that network that you you might get the feedback that you actually crave that you're not getting from uh, from your broadcast. I, I have exactly the same issue. Uh, we don't get feedback. I don't, I don't suppose Colo does from the BBC. And men tend to be a bit 
Um, I don't know the reasons, but but a, a bloke's not going to go up to another bloke in the commentary box and say, you know, you, you probably just went a bit too high on the on that uh, that last twenty minutes section. We don't feedback. So, are you getting that feedback now from this support network? I'd say that you know, especially for those that are coming in for the first time doing women's cricket. You know, a prime example would be an ICC women's event where. ICC want to make sure they have different commentators from around the world and might be their first tournament. So what, what we tend to do is, obviously, if you're the more senior commentator, we'll probably give feedback. And, you know, Julia Price has only just come on the scene from a Big Bash point of view. And, you know, I've pointed out to her some of, um, you know, the common words or the cruxes that she uses to, to kind of string her sentences together. And until someone tells you you actually don't know what you're doing. So it is a place for us to, to get feedback. But I also ask my friends and my family to be really honest <laughs> and don't blow smoke up up my backside. Like, just please tell me if I'm sounding boring or, you know, I'm not inspiring you to, to, to stay watching. I need you to tell me. So my family are pretty brutal. They don't care um, <laughs> the feedback that they give me. They give it to me straight up. That Channel 10 bridge, I suppose, those those first couple of years when the Women's Big Bash League, I mean, it's a great, it's a great story, isn't it? Because they, they were going to put, if I recall correctly, 10 games on the secondary network and in the and they expected an average of 40,000 viewers per game. Suddenly, the whole thing takes off. All the games are moved to the main network and by the end of the season, three quarters of a million people are watching the final. I mean, it's, a, it's an extraordinary transition in the space of what was probably eight or nine weeks. Can you just recall what it was like being part of that journey in season one especially when people kind of the, the penny drops are like oh if we build it they will come and you were front and center of that with a couple of others who i mean i know you were playing as well but as far as commentary was concerned you were front and center and adding on to that do i recall correctly that you missed some games to commentate that year or something like that well certainly i had retired in 2013 and when the the big bash came about i was like hmm this sounds a bit cool i want to get get on the park and all the past male players were doing it so i thought why can't a past female player do it so i was thankful that the sydney sixes uh, uh, wanted my services and it was nice because my close friends who I'd missed since retirement, Elisa Healy, Elise Perry and, and probably Sarah Ailey, you know, I wanted to play with them and for it to be fun. But I had spoken to them that I had retired, I want to start this new career. So my priority was with Channel 10 as a commentator. So if there were the clashes, I would commentate instead of playing. Obviously, we went on to, to make the semi-finals and finals where I did play, but I was mic'd up and they'd come to me a lot during the game. So I guess I gave them even more insight than maybe what players were used to giving back then. It was an amazing transformation. And, and to be honest, you know, you talk about hardly getting any feedback. Dave Barham, you know, is probably one of very few. Um, Simon Wheeler as well, who was my first director for IPL. They're two guys that would actually sit down afterwards and go, look, you know how you said this? Or, or Dave Barham would actually be in the truck. And so he'd speak to us and say, you know, initially when I was sitting in, in the chair and because the difference, because you've got your uh, lip mic, which is your more traditional, and but obviously Big Bash and T20 cricket, you've got your headset. So it picks up everything. And so I'd just go shot. And, he'd, and Dave Byron would be in my ear going, tell me why it's a good shot. So he was actually coaching me whilst I was 
commentating and that helped me to understand instead of you know four hours later and they say you know when you said this and it's like when did I say that (laughs) what was I saying what situation I can't remember I said a lot but he was able to give feedback straight away and I think also by shooting the women's big bash just like the men's big bash and channel 10 didn't give lip service to the women's game enabled viewers to go oh okay women's cricket it doesn't seem that much different to, than the men's game. Yeah, the ball's not flying into the stands as much, but it's an attractive form of cricket. I'm going to stick around and watch it. And I think Cricket Australia weren't surprised, and I know Steph Beltrami, who was a head of um, uh, media, I think at that stage, already had known the numbers that were coming through, and I guess it was a justification for her pushing Channel 10 to take the women's game that the numbers increased and obviously moved on to the main channel. Yeah, it's interesting that it was the women's comp that was the catalyst for a lot of women's commentators, if you like. You know, like as I mentioned Mel before, but Mel Farrell was there for bits and pieces of it. And yeah, it felt like there was a revolution taking place on the field, but it was one taking place in the broadcast box, which informed the conversation about why are they not women calling men's cricket? Why are they not on the test matches? Why are they not on Channel 9? Like there was this knock-on effect after BBL season one, WBBL, sorry, season one, which meant that by the next year and the next year, people, the conversation had changed quite a bit. Yeah, there, there was a change in the environment that we were seeing I think because viewers actually got to hear what we had to say and they were like oh they actually know the game they're giving us insight into how the players are thinking um, you know what they're working towards the the nuances of T20 cricket for me having played it as well and captained um, the New South Wales side in T20 competitions so we were able to Mel and I were able to kind of share our our knowledge and and people were hopefully and it seemed that they were impressed and then all of a sudden the conversations were starting to be had so channel nine um even whilst we're at uh 10 kind of asked if mel and i could could do bits and pieces because i think channel nine still had the international women's matches so channel 10 had the domestic and channel nine had the international so we started to cross over and then the feedback from the channel nine audience was okay these girls aren't too bad and we started to pop up on the cricket show mel was doing radio i was doing abc grandstand as well so we started to be around cricket a lot more and i think that was the thing that people needed to see or the general public that you know, we can be part of cricket conversations quite easily. We can share our opinions and they're not dissimilar to what a past male player can share. So why why don't we see more women involved in, in media, uh, cricket broadcast? And yeah, it changed. And I think probably the big change was, I think, I can't remember, maybe it was Channel 9's last year when they had the photo. So the photo goes out. So 1718, the ashes. And Daniel and I were talking about this before talking to you that by that point, Nine, it was the last year they had the rights. They were finishing up and they'd been bloke, 100% blokes forever. So it was very, very unlikely they were going to introduce a new voice and, and a woman at that. But nonetheless, it went, I mean, it was a, it was a big moment, wasn't it? That, that photo. Yeah, that photo went viral. And, you know, there were a lot of females and males going, where's the diversity? And someone said, no, there is diversity. One guy's got a hat. <laughs> You know, so there was jokes being played. And the thing was that I actually got on really well with Brent Williams, who was the executive producer there, because he had come in, I think, for the last year, maybe, of Channel 9's broadcast. And I got along really well with him. And I got along well with majority of the commentators as well with Channel 9. So I felt sorry for them. But 
they had kind of created this bubble of this is, is, this is what commentary should be. And whilst they tried to change and maybe a little bit too late, the general public around them had moved well past what they were offering up. And unfortunately for them, they copped a lot of criticism. They did try and change that because I think Mel Jones and I featured heavily on the cricket show during the lunchtime intervals throughout that test series. And thankfully, Channel 10 allowed us to do that. So we started to pop up a little bit more. And um, I think that was try to appease the fact that there were no females in the commentary box. But yeah, that I, I believe that photo was probably the defining moment within sports broadcast, within cricket here in this country. Can I just, just get a, your perspective on being an Australian woman as opposed to, to an English woman in these circumstances? But I, I've seen quite close hand in the TMS box that, uh, I mean, it gets less and less each year. But even now, when a woman comes on, on TMS Twitter, we still have to go through the, you know, why have we got women on TMS? because there's this sense of this tradition, that I guess, that's been there for decades and what have you. Australian women's cricket seems to me to have been more advanced for longer. The game is more watched by more people. Did that, do you think, make the transition to acceptance is a terrible word, but did it get easier, do you think, to be a woman commentator in Australia to get approval than perhaps counterparts in England who still have to really convince their audience to a degree yeah i I think it might go back to and 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 this is this is probably my background and where i i grew up and where i played the majority of my cricket it was at cricket new south wales and christina matthews was the head of marketing so any event that we had she put the men's and the women's team on the same platform this is like probably pre- Integration. This, you know, this is where we're, we're already starting. So, you know, I used to train, you know, we used to do events with Brett Lee side by side, Michael Clark, And then obviously from an Australian perspective, there were a lot more New South Wales players in the Australian team as well. So whenever the Australian team was there, Belinda Clark, you know, was seen going up and giving Ricky Ponting a kiss. And there was always a level of, and we were successful as well, which which probably helped. So the New South Wales side won a lot of domestic titles, more than the male side at that period of time, and vice versa with the Australian team. So we were seen by our male counterparts, I think, you know, and I can't speak for them, but on, on, a, on a, a level playing field in that sense, we were just as successful as they were. So going into the commentary box or having, you know, now going into the commentary box with them, I find that their acceptance of us and our understanding of the game, it's really natural and they know what we can bring straight away. I think because of all of those years of doing so many events, um, functions, ads, you name it, um, you know, that has built a certain rapport with the similar group of commentators and maybe that's enabled if there has been anything that's been out in social media maybe our fellow commentators have, have nipped that in the bud because they come to us for a really crucial point and they don't always go to the past male player for that. Um, so maybe that has played a role. I think, it, I think it's played a positive role in the acceptance of females within, 
the commentary box here in Australia. It's really interesting because that, I mean, even just last week, Lisa, I mean, you were, I was going to ask you about this later, but seeing as we're talking about it now, I mean, when Boycott comes out and makes those comments, I mean, Ali writes a considered piece after, you know, it ran the same time as well for the Telegraph over here, but, you know, Essentially, boycott saying that there's no role for women calling test cricket. It's the guts of it. Um, no role to be summarising next. You couldn't possibly understand it. And you were the one that went out there and, and, and pushed back extremely hard and called it as, as it was. Can you just expand on those thoughts from, from what you said to John Perrick last week and just explain why you thought it was important that no, that someone laid a marker there from your you know, WhatsApp group of women commentators, which you know it's almost fabled these days, the group you guys have together and talk to each other on, that someone went out there and said, you know, this is bullshit. Yeah, look, um, <laughs> yeah, I look at the comments and, and I, I know John and I've, I've worked a fair bit with him, so I'm sure there was a certain amount of um, laid-back conversation that I didn't think he'd pick up. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not... I'm not upset about what he wrote because they are my views and and I'd like to think, you know, majority of the population agree with my point. His his issues around pace and power means that we can't commentate men's test cricket has got nothing to do with commentary. (laughs) It doesn't matter. The same feelings and emotions that a female player may experience is, is exactly the same as a male player. Yes, they may not be playing in front of a big crowd, but... Uh, we're starting to see that, you know, the Australian women's side, the final 86,000, uh, do you get a bigger moment than that? So, you know, I, I disagreed with his comments uh, and I thought, look, he had an opportunity to bow out after, you know, a, a long career in in the game as a player and a broadcaster. I didn't really appreciate that he had to, on his way out, just have a have a go at the female commentators because it felt like we were the reasons why he was dismissed and I'm sure that's, you know, I don't know what goes on with TMS, um, but everyone has their time and, and people have to, to, to close a door on each of their chapters, whether it be playing or broadcast. But the world is changing. We're wanting, especially our sport, to be a sport for everyone. And he was, he's a guy who people respect whether it be as a player or a broadcaster or just what he's done, the service to the game. And he was having a go at us and I thought, you know, we, we normally just stay quiet and we don't normally say anything because it's the right thing to do and maybe we're concerned about future job opportunities. But I just thought people can't get away with saying those things anymore. Do you think that that wouldn't happen in Australia? I mean, I, I sort of think I know why boycott can say that in england and it's complicated and it's about tradition and nonsense and a generally conservative attitude to things that permeates british society is can you imagine an australian commentator leaving the box and writing those comments i hope not um i'd like to think that um you know those those older commentators that have been the voice of of that cricket um you look at people like jim maxwell he commentates with females regularly nowadays and and he's watched how many test matches and the rapport that he has with those females in the commentary box is good and they're the experts because he's the caller so i think i would be very disappointed if if any you know male broadcaster in this country was to say something along those lines because i feel that Australia as a society has embraced women's sport and women in sport really well. And recently, um, 
I think yesterday actually uh, there was a survey about which teams, Australian teams, um, do you emotionally connect the best with? And the four top teams were four female teams. So, and that was taken on a survey of, I think, what, maybe 5,000 Australian citizens. So it just shows you that women connect and that women play an, uh, an attractive form of whatever the sport that they're playing. 2016 IPL. 15, 15. 15, sorry, sorry, 15. Huge turning point, you know, I suppose that people weren't really anticipating the IPL of all competitions um, embracing women the way that they did, and they did it like kapow. It was big, it was sudden, it was everywhere, and it was like revolutionary. And can you just explain, or really just tell us that story and, and just what a crazy, like, um, the thing to happen that was in context and, and like, obviously what's happened since with it. Yeah, so uh, so the summer of um, fourteen fifteen, I was uh, doing some commentary for ABC Grandstand, calling test cricket as well um, at the SCG test, and Ned Hall sent me a, uh, a message saying, oh, look, this uh, Simon or Terry wants to talk to you. And I'm like, who's this guy? And he, he's like, oh, I think he's a manager. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure, send him my details. So he rings me up and Simon goes, look, I've been listening to you on ABC Grandstand. Do you want to commentate in the IPL? And I'm like, huh, yeah, but that's my 10-year goal. I was thinking, you know, slowly work, you know, do T20 cricket, do domestic cricket, do women's cricket and slowly, you know, build up to hopefully one day IPL. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to put your name down. I said, okay, go for it. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? I don't know this guy. I've never heard of him. Two weeks later, he rings me up. He goes, yep, you're in. I said, sorry? He said, yeah, no, you're in. You IPL, there's four of you females that are, that are, get the opportunity. So Anjum Chopra, Melanie Jones, Isha Gua and myself. And fly over. And, and to be honest, I'd only covered three women's T20 internationals on TV. The rest had been all in the commentary box radio. So I get to IPL, I get to Eden Gardens, and I literally, and so the great thing what they did, the BCCI, was that there was four females, there were four crews. So every night throughout the IPL, there was a female voice on covering the IPL at some point. Obviously, we do different stints. And I think, you know, they had already recognised they wanted more females involved in the game, watching it and taking part in, in what the bonanza was of the IPL. They didn't want it just to be purely the men's league. So by having us there, it was hoped that uh, more females would be involved in the, in the coverage. And their numbers, supposedly, they tell us, um, spiked really well. But it was a bold move and it was something that all of us thought would never happen, that IPL would be one of the last places that would want to have female commentators. And you've got to remember that the IPL is the greatest T20 domestic competition and they put women in the box way before anyone else did. So, yeah, it was a a daunting experience, but uh, I had... um, And the fact that I was with a crew for that entire tournament probably allowed me to learn the most that I've ever learned and also um, form really strong friendships. The fact that it was every night, from an audience perspective, again, an audience which had never heard a woman on television or not that they have radio commentary in India anymore, but when there was radio commentary, it was one man, you did the whole day and 
anyway. And now it was, you know, these these women who, I mean, I know they would have heard of you to an extent as former players, but really unknown as voices. How was the response? And how do you think it was helped along by virtue of the fact that it was every night rather than sort of like one person, which may have been interpreted as tokenistic. Instead, it was like integral to the coverage. Yeah, I think that was really important for the acceptance of females within the commentary box, that there was one being telecasted every every night. The fact that all four of us, um, and we, we started, that's probably how we started this WhatsApp group, it was between the four of us because we never got to see each other. You know, for two months, we'd be flying around the country and we'd never really cross paths. But... We did, all four of us did a lot of research because we felt that this was our one opportunity for females post us to be in the commentary box. Because if we stuffed it up, it wouldn't be Lisa Stalaka has no idea or Ishigua has no idea. They didn't know who we were. So it would just be labelled as females have no idea. So that weight of expectation and for us to get it right for each other was really important because... Even to this day, I still get mixed up with Ishigua regularly. I get people tweeting going, so, you know, great work, Lisa, on the toss during the test match. And it's like, thank you. And like sometimes I, do, I can't be bothered to go, no, that's not me, it's Isha. So luckily, Isha's very good and we're all very good because people still get us confused because they're not used to our faces, um, but they're used to a female voice. So they attribute any female voice and they know that you commentate, it must be you doing all of the games. So there has, there's always been an extra level of expectation that we have to perform well, not only for ourselves, but also for each other and for the next generation. You've, I think answered the question I was going to ask but what fascinates me is the difference between the mindset of being a pioneering woman commentator and basically what people like me and Colo go through where we're men in the commentary box and we're doing it we stand and fall just on, on our on our own in a way do you know what I mean we have to differentiate ourselves from other men but we don't feel any kind of sense of obligation to the male community we, set, we feel a sense of obligation to our families who let us do it and ourselves only. How do you think you would characterise the difference in mindset of a, of a woman commentator in those early days? I'm sure it'll you know, change and, and even out, but uh, those early days over, over what we probably go through and think. Yeah, I think you've just got to, you've got to go back to the first for any females going into a man's world. And there is a level of expectation that you want to prove that you're good enough for the job. But there was always a a fear. And, you know, and Channel 9 were obviously the leaders when it came to, to broadcast of cricket. And they had already tried a female and it had flopped terribly. So now it was an opportunity, Okay, we're going to try past players. Maybe this might be a little bit better. But there was always a fear that if we didn't get it right, it, we would could be easily discarded. And like I said, that the next generation, the next generation of players that retire and, and still want to be involved in the game but want to um, do it from a telecast or broadcast point of view wouldn't necessarily be accepted. So um, there was that, that weight of expectation and also because I think as individuals we pride ourselves on wanting to do a good job. You know, that, that's why we played elite sport because... We always wanted to get better and be the best at whatever we did. And, and I don't think broadcast is any different for any of us. Returning back to Australia, when the rights deal was done for the 18-19 summer, 
which gave Seven and Fox the opportunity to do something a bit different to what Nine had done. And I, and I know Ten had done something different as well, but the, the transition from Nine to, to Seven and Fox's international broadcasters, I suppose, is what I'm looking at here. There was never any doubt that women were going to be involved holus bolus. What I'm trying to say is that, is that after the Nine experience, the photo and so on, when people were talking about you know what would happen in 1819, that there would be an influence, there would be a better gender balance. And you know the fact that Ali and, and Isha and yourself and others all ended up part of it across the two networks very quickly it wasn't a shock no one was going oh what there's going to be women on the tv it was just like oh yeah of course they're going to be you know we're, we're used to this now can you just talk about i mean I'm, i appreciate it may not have been as straightforward by the sounds of things but but just that idea in the public consciousness that of course women will be calling the test matches i'll probably go back to the previous year as well and, and that's when I, we had the ashes wasn't it so mel jones and i and, and people used to say Whenever I listen to cricket or watch it or on the radio, you two are popping up left, right and centre. And, you know, maybe subconsciously both Mel and I thought, well, the media rights deal's coming up. We're saying yes to everything. So people get used to us and that we're the next generation of commentators that get an opportunity to get longer contracts, not just a tour by tour or match by match proposition. So, yeah, I, th- I think that previous year allowed the general public to, to, to feel comfortable with females being in the commentary box. And then, obviously, when you bring in the calibre of Isha and Ali Mitchell and, and then the two of us, you know, we've, we've now had enough experience around the world commentating predominantly more men's cricket than women's cricket. And then you, you put us here in the domestic and international um, schedule and... You know, we were able to kind of pick up where we left off and it allowed for an easy transition. And generally, I think majority of people really enjoyed having a female perspective, a female voice in the commentary box. And now it's like the most normal thing in the world. Press fast forward two years on and the fact that all of you are on the networks and it's not just the, the three of you, but there are others who are involved at different times. And Aisha is the face of the BBC as well. So, you know, it's... Well, it's... yeah, yeah. And, and, and Ali's the face of Channel 7. Uh, I mean, as far as the being hosting the broadcast and being, you know, welcome to wherever we are, it's um, Channel 7 and Aisha doing it for Foxtel. And I mean, there's two English accents as well as another layer to this as well it's not australians you would you wouldn't think that there'd be foreigners hosting on on australian tv but yeah i guess it's that idea that now it's just so normal and it's been so quick if you compare it to when the photo was viral to now not even three years on it's been a quick transition to now things just being oh yeah just whatever this is what it is yeah it is and and obviously uh england um australia and new zealand probably have females in the commentary box for bilateral series you know, there's still other countries that don't necessarily have females in the box for other test series that may happen. And you will see that change over time. Uh, I think there has, you know, in speaking to, you know, people within the vaults of Channel 9, they were a little bit hesitant about, you know, having flunked the first time. How do we slowly do that? And Dave Barham was a prime example because I think he brought Kelly Underwood into the AFL and that didn't go well. So he was always of the belief females needed to be part of sports broadcast. But it's about slowly integrating them so it doesn't become a big, oh, oh, my gosh. Same thing like even from a Big Bash point of view, Mel Jones and I were doing boundary writing for the men's game first before we went into the commentary box. So, again, getting people used to us before we transition. So as much as we'd like to go 
bang, here we are. And, and obviously BCCI did that for the IPL in 2015. We, we've seen a slow, uh, probably a slower transition around the world. And what that's allowed to happen is that females have transitioned fairly easily into the commentary box without probably too much conjecture about their opinions and thoughts. Can I ask you just to finish off on that thought? Because it's, that is such an alien concept to a man. You know, that the thought that we'd have to be brought on slowly because we might offend our audience. How difficult is that to be the, per- to be the person who's perfectly good at their job, but is having to be held back? How, what, can you talk us through that sort of potential frustration? I guess, I guess my thoughts in commentary is that my voice, the way that I talk about the game, will not appeal to everyone. And one thing I learned about that Channel 9 commentary box when I was, you know, just in the background listening to how they converse is you've got so many different personalities, different points of view, and you either love or hate that commentator, really. There's no in-between sometimes. And, the, you know, part of the executive producer is to ensure that they get a mixture, a of opinions of skill level you know batters captains spinners keepers fast bowls you know you name it and then obviously a lead caller who's very good broadcaster so by having those kind of mix that you need to be it, it takes time and, and I knew that people were not used to a female voice being in in commentary obviously we tend to be probably a little bit higher pitched than males but I think if you find majority of the females that do commentate have a they tend to have a lower voice anyway, so it's more appealing. So th- that's just what broadcast is like. That's what we're used to. That's what we've been built up. So it's taken time for people to get used to our voices, but also for us to train our voices as well. There's a whole art to, to making sure that you're entertaining in, in how you pitch and your tone and, and the words you use as well. So it's a whole another skill that I'm still st- trying to master. So by understanding that, and I think also going back to cricket, I don't come into the, the, the Australian team and demand to open the batting and open the bowling. I bide my time. I learn from the best. I get a couple of overs here or there. So I used my learnings from cricket to apply into broadcast as well and just learn from the, the best in the business. Uh, when I get my opportunity, make sure that I grab it with both hands. It feels like data uh, and analytics and stats and so on have taken such a, a bigger part of the broadcasting pie and you know it, it's just a bigger part of the story now than it was before I suppose and the fact that there are dedicated people at test matches but that role the importance of it now and the importance of being able to synthesize what can often be quite complicated sets of data or whatever it is and being able to turn it into something that's digestible for the public. I, th- I think Probably T20 cricket was the one where it first started and and maybe the IPL because T20 cricket is based on 120 single events and when people are under a lot of stress, they go back to what they feel comfortable and when you start to analyse the data, you start to figure out what players are going to do, what are they going to revert back to. So whilst T20 cricket kind of came, uh, burst onto the scene, it was a bit of Mickey Mouse, you know, this isn't real cricket, uh, all of a sudden it became the most tactical format out of all three. And I did um, a chat with uh, Steve Smith, Josh Hazelwood and Nathan Lyon in the SCG change rooms last year. And I asked 
all three of them, what do you think you spend more looking at stats and footage and uh, analysis? And Steve and Josh both said T20 cricket. Nathan obviously went test because that's, that's what he loves. That's his format. But, you know, for Steve Smith, who's been captain of, of all formats, he said T20 cricket is where all that analysis starts to be broken down. And then what the broadcasters have been able to do in T20 cricket is to try and educate the fans that, you know, there is some thought process. So, you know, when Ricky Ponting gets in and says he's going to do this or she's going to go there and it happens, everyone goes, oh, how did he figure that one out? It's because he's reading the game really well and that's what the best players do. So that, because of T20 cricket and because, you know, that's played ball by ball almost, that analysis has now kind of seeped in through to the one-day format and now test. So you brought the analysis is there to help broadcasters, to keep educating the public. It should never take over from the actual cricket. I think stats and analysis certainly have a place, but at the end of the day, it's, it's the flow, especially test cricket, it's the flow of the events, flow of a session to session, day to day. Um, they're the stories. But, but if you can keep educating through stats and analysis because we're all geeks at heart, then uh, you're certainly going to, to kind of keep the fans coming back for more. I read somewhere, and one of the most fascinating things I've, I've read that I've applied to cricket commentary, that part of the job of, uh, say, a film director like Hitchcock is that you get a scene and you've got two people talking to each other and there's a bomb under the table. And if you're Hitchcock, what you do is you keep cutting to the bomb under the table and then back up to the two people who are talking. They don't know the bomb's there. And so you have this suspense. You don't know if the bomb's going to go off or not. If a bad director will just have two people talking and then the bomb goes off. So all you get is surprise. In a sense, is analysis the sort of pointing to all those different bombs that could go off all over the pitch at any given time? Is it, like, is it creating suspense? Yeah, I like that. I've never thought of it like that. But it's normally done before an event has happened or it analyses straight after the event. So say if someone gets out, well, how did he or she get that batter out? Well, this is the setup that is done. So explaining the process that goes into it. So I think it, it is about suspense as well, but it's also about education as well for the young young or old cricketer that's out there trying to figure out well how do I get a player out like this or how do I bowl to a certain player so I think it has two folds but I like your analogy it's yeah I, I, yeah yeah you have to use it quite a lot on radio because you've got to find lots of things to talk about talk about yeah <laughs> you love it when I know because I've noticed when I go from tv to radio I'm used to having all this information delivered to me um, and then obviously radio is great because you can talk about all sorts of stories and you can go off left field as well but some absolute gold gets flashed up and then you're like yes we've got to talk about that Lisa if you can get the, the crystal ball out a bit hmm. just as we close how do you think it'll evolve stylistically over the next generation how do you think cricket commentary will feel as we work our way through the next 10 years or so and as far as personnel and as far as the way the job is done well, certainly commentary has changed from when I grew up listening to it. T20 has probably um, changed how commentary is. It's more high-paced, energy-packed. You don't let the pictures breathe very rarely. Um, you, you get short stints and you're there to, to 
get your points across and then you're out again. I wouldn't be surprised if commentary involves and, and it's almost cyclical where we go back to letting the, the pictures breathe and, um, and it's probably based around what's happening in our environment. At the moment, we're all fast-paced. We want, we want things straight away. So as commentators, we're trying to give that to, to the viewers. Um, as for the diversity within commentary box... It's only going to, to continue on this um, upward trend. I wouldn't be surprised that the, the current female players that are playing international cricket, there will be more and more of them that will cross over into the commentary box. Um, we're already starting to see Elisa Healy do bits and pieces already. Also with Channel 7, we've got, you know, Elise Villani, who's still playing, who is part of our WBBL coverage. So we're going to see that... Uh, you know, a real opportunity for players to still be involved in the game through broadcasting. So I think, uh, you know, this sport and sports broadcasting has been crying out for more females in the commentary box, and I think that will continue. I've got two more things, and and one of them is a terrible admission that we have done three interviews, four interviews now for this episode, and uh, we've focused so heavily on England and Australia that we uh, and the and the IPL that we've not really mentioned Natalie Germanos, and um, you were saying earlier that you know it is predominantly in England and Australia, but uh, and New Zealand. But it's it's worth just spending a little bit of time on her story as well. I think because she came in not as an ex player, but as a professional broadcaster like Ali. Yeah, well, you know, a lot has to be said about South Africa ABC what they do there and I actually uh, went over and covered an Australian one day series with them so you have Kaz Naidu as well who's the host and commentates so she's not a past player either so you had two females as in Kaz Naidu and and Natalie Natalie Germanos that were on free-to-air TV covering the international matches and and were part of the commentary team and were very integral into it so when I stepped into that team it was it was a weird feeling because it was there was two other females already involved so that they've certainly led the way in south africa and it's great to see now that natalie germanos is getting those opportunities obviously involved um, with the icc events but also um, she covered the men's world cup with you guys on tms and she's being recognized as a wonderful lead caller because she is an excellent broadcaster so you know there are a number of women in south africa over in new zealand as well um, Debbie Hockley, uh, Frankie, uh, Francis Mackay is doing some international games and Leslie Murdoch. So each country is starting to, to find those those past female players and, and finding a role for them. So, yeah, it won't be long until we see each country have females part of their regular commentary team. Over the course of this series of documentaries we've done, we've seen a pattern in broadcasting emerge that the arrival of a big-name player like Bradman and then the England team of the 50s and the West Indies side of the 70s and the Indian sides of uh, the last 10-15 years has driven a massive explosion in broadcasting. But I wonder if in the future, especially in a country like Britain, maybe it's more difficult for you to talk about it to Britain, but broadcasters are now almost being asked to bring fans to the game rather than reflect something that fans already had a yearning for you know rather than jumping on the back of oh the, this Indian side's getting huge we, we need to be broadcasting this 24-7 we're 
sort of at a stage where we're saying we've got to get more people interested in cricket. Do you do you see that in broadcasting at all? And do you see therefore a slightly different requirement or motivation for broadcasters because they've got to do the educating thing and the entertainment thing they think to bring people in yeah i mean obviously not being in england and and being involved really with your summers what i can say is you know um the fact that cricket went behind a paywall was a was a massive issue i think for for england cricket generally so the fact that it's coming back on bbc um that you've got ishigua from a diverse background um who will be hosting it um she brings the cricket credibility um the fact that she's covered a lot of cricket uh, around the world obviously hosting here in australia as well so the experience she brings to that i can understand that for england there has to be a re-education of what the game is um and i think to to a certain extent australia will have to do that as well as our um our migrant population comes from the asian countries where cricket is not a predominant sport when as much as the english still love coming to to australia and and getting burnt to a crisp we've got more and more from from the asian countries who don't know the game so there is always an element and i think it's more for the free to air broadcasters that have to do that education and i can i get and i understand by picking certain commentators that have a good following or that are well known in cricket circles you might bring some of those cricket fans who are normally paying for subscription they may come now and watch the free to air so i i get that there has to be two parts but i think as cricket is 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 trying to become a global game and and countries are changing from a multicultural point of view and a diversity point of view education still needs to be happening for that sport and we as commentators because we are the voice of it have such a huge part to play so and cricket is a very strange game to a lot of people and we've got to we've got to break it down for them okay my my last question is is a bit of a doozy really it's um can you just talk about how you feel about being a cricket commentator the 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 privilege that you might think it is i mean i, I but I, I get a bit wet-eyed when i think oh my god i get to call cricket for a living uh, you may not feel like that but if you do or even if you don't <laughs> you could just talk to that what what it, what it means to you to be a commentator look to be honest so, you know I, i'd always wanted to be involved in the game you know the game has given me so many opportunities and I never wanted to say goodbye to it so whether that was coaching administration um broadcast you know I wasn't quite sure one thing that this uh, pandemic has made me realize is I thoroughly love my job you know there can be times that I get tired jumping on on planes every second day and and missing out on family occasions but I feel that I've found something that I am so passionately devoted to that you know i can't wait for this pandemic to end because i feel a little bit of a lost soul at the moment not working and not being involved and and the thing is i don't even see it as work i do see it as a privilege uh, that's one thing um i noticed straight away when i you know got a chance to stand up the back of the channel 9 commentary box was it was an absolute privilege to be standing there it was an absolute privilege to see those guys do what they do and and shape what people's opinions are about the game and and we've been entrusted with that that job and I hope that I do 
do it justice and, and that hopefully I have a, a long career in the business because it is something that I thoroughly enjoy. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. Final Word story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon rounding off another edition of our weekend chat cricket history and also the future of the game as well. I love the story that Lisa tells her about being plucked on the back of you know someone hearing her on the radio doing a spot and before she knew it, she was recruited to the IPL to be on television and one of the you know, the pioneering women commentators on that broadcast. It's a hell of a story and I'm so glad that she's now getting these great opportunities. I'm working with her this year on, on SCN on radio and also that she's doing, of course, great work with Channel 7 and all around the world, really, as part of the ICC major events team. She's an absolute star. And she fits in perfectly with story time. Lisa needs braces. <laughs> she doesn't need braces, though. She's fine. Um, <laughs> she's, she's dental dentally on top of the world yeah we've watched lisa's work over a long period of time with admiration and uh, more strength to her arm this show is released on the bad producer podcast network they have lots of other shows go and check them out and see what you like thank you to everyone who contributes this is the show that absolutely wouldn't happen without the listeners and subscribers and nerd pledges who make it happen so this is your show this is us Bearing our souls for you. Bless you all. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it.